The day is here that we've been waiting for. Throughout to disturb the peace. And because Jerusalem was a hotbed at this time of the Passover, Pontius Pilate, the governor of the, the Roman governor of the region, whose palace was off to the west on the seacoast. I mean, if you're the governor, you get to have the beachfront property. He would come in with reinforcements of Roman troops from the west about a week before Passover just to keep an eye on things, just in case. You had the other front moving in of the messianic expectations of the people. We saw hints of it throughout Mark's Gospel that the, the, the Messiah is coming someday, and when He comes, by golly, He's going to do what David did. He's going to kick out the Romans and going to restore our freedom and set things right. And then you had the third front coming in. What God was doing in this situation. Which was not the same as either of the other two. It wasn't the same as the expectations of the people. It certainly wasn't the same power politics of Rome. But a very different kind of power. So all of that's going on in the backdrop of this story. Jesus and the disciples are coming down from Galilee in the north. 
probably coming down along the, the Jordan River. And they're preparing to come into Jerusalem. As they're in that final stretch, we find, just to give you a little head start, the story is, is they're in chapter 10 leading up to this, is they're moving towards Jericho. So they were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus is walking ahead of them. They were amazed and those who followed were afraid. Many people were following Jesus, not just the twelve. And because they knew what awaited in Jerusalem, many of them were afraid. And Jesus took the twelve aside again and began to tell them what was to happen. Okay, guys, listen up. One more time. It's not going to be what you are expecting. Instead, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed and persecuted and handed over to the Gentiles and be crucified. And no sooner as these words left Jesus' lips, they're on the road, and James and John's come up, and for, for the third time now say, Hey, Jesus, we want you to promise to do for us whatever we ask. But parents, have you ever, have you ever had that situation where your child comes to you and says, I want you to promise me that you, you'll say yes to something I'm about to ask you. What, what happens in your gut at that moment? I mean, you just, no, this is going to be a good one. Okay, guys, what do you want? He doesn't promise, he doesn't say yes. We want you to promise us that when you come into your glory, we'll see that you're, we'll be seated at your right hand and your left. In other words, they're saying, Jesus, when we get you elected Messiah, we want to make sure that we get the best cabinet position. They just didn't get it. So it's with that background that they're making the final approach into Jerusalem, up from Jericho, beginning in chapter 11 at verse 1. When they were approaching Jerusalem at Bethpage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples. He said to them, go ahead to the village ahead of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Just say, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here immediately. They went away and found a colt tied near a door outside in the street. As they were untying it, some of the bystanders said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? They said to them what Jesus had said, and they allowed them to take it. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who were following were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Then he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, it was already late. He went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is the word of the Lord. Most gracious God, we pray that you will open our hearts, that you might implant your true and living word within us, that you will be with us to help us to, to hear what you would have us to hear this day from your true and living word. 
For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Throughout this gospel, in many places, when they talk about going to Jerusalem, it's always going up to Jerusalem. It doesn't matter if you're coming from the north, south, east, or west. It's still going up to Jerusalem. And that's because the topography of the area. We were told that they, they go through, uh, through Jericho and then up to Jerusalem. This is the Roman road. Just outside of Jericho is it's going up. Now do you see why they say going up to Jerusalem? Look at the terrain and the topography. Over about 12 miles, you go from this lowest city on the face of the earth. Jericho is 720 feet below sea level. And in about 12 miles, they go from, they start out over here in Jericho, 720 feet below sea level, through all the ups and downs. They finally come up to the Mount of Olives, which is 2,600 feet above sea level, go down through the Kidron Valley and into Jerusalem. So with with the emotional feeling, the context of we're going for Passover, can you imagine the emotions when after schlepping up this mountain, you finally get to the peak there, the Mount of Olives, and you can see Jerusalem. You can see the temple, the place where God abides. And he writes, says that even if you were climbing that road every week on business, there'd still be a sense of exhilaration, of delight and relief when you got to the top. When they get to the top, they come to the Mount of Olives. And on the right-hand side, you see the, the yellow line. This would have been the route that Jesus and the disciples followed through the village of Bethany, which was mentioned in the Gospel read. Then Bethpage, up the Mount of Olives, down through the Kidron Valley, and into Jerusalem. Now, when they get there, Jesus tells two of his disciples, Mark's always the most concise gospel. He tells the whole Palm Sunday story in just 11 verses. And yet he spends half of the time on preparation. He tells two of the disciples to, to go ahead from Bethany up to the next place, which was undoubtedly Bethpage, though Mark doesn't name it. And there you'll find a donkey that's been untied, or that, that's tied up. A young colt that's never been written. Actually, he doesn't say donkey. Actually, Mark never says donkey, nor does he say palm branches. Mark just says a young colt and leafy branches they've cut from the field. It's only in John that it's specifically palm branches. But he says, go go on up ahead. You'll find a donkey tied there. And if anybody asks you what you're doing, just say, the, the Lord has need of it and he'll send it right back. There has been a lot of debate about why Mark dwells on that detail. Spends so much time on that detail. Some have seen it as Evidence of some sort of supernatural prophetic insight that Jesus can see the future of what's going to happen there. Others, one, one person has suggested it sounds almost like a Jedi mind trick. These aren't the droids you're looking for. Just say the Lord has need of it and he'll bring it back. But I think the, the easiest and most obvious explanation is that Jesus knew somebody in that page and had made arrangements in advance about borrowing the donkey. The cult. 
But again, why does Mark spend so much time on this detail? Tom Long suggests that though no one knows what these two disciples were thinking, I am very confident that they had managed themselves a grander and nobler role on this day than being on donkey detail. Mark doesn't name which two disciples, but if I were a betting man, I would bet big bucks. Remember the sons of thunder, James and John. Master, we want you to promise us that you'll give us whatever we ask for that. Give us the power seats in your cabinet. I'd bet big bucks this was James and John. Who had such vivid dreams of the prestige and the power, the role that they were going to play when Jesus is finally acclaimed as the rightful king of Israel. And here they are, going to a smelly stable, trying to finagle with a used donkey trader how to procure, the they were the advanced men, trying to procure a donkey, a young colt, for Jesus' triumphal entry. Not very glorious. Pretty mundane, pretty common. And yet, throughout Mark's Gospel, Mark depicts discipleship in general, and the twelve in particular as, how should we say it, not the brightest bulbs in the chandelier. They consistently do not get it. Whatever it is that Jesus is talking about, it just goes over their heads. And I think perhaps part of what Mark is telling us here is that faithful discipleship is not necessarily about always being the brightest kid in the class. Always having all the answers. Always knowing the right answer. Sometimes, most of the time, faithful discipleship is showing up, is preparing the way, is doing the things that Jesus calls us to do, even when there's not a lot of glory or even satisfaction in it. It's giving a cup of cold water in his name. It's showing up early for choir practice or for the trustees' work day. It's preparing the lesson for the children's Sunday school. It's making sure that the van's got good tires on it before the, the youth take a trip or the volunteers and mission team takes off. It's, it's all of these countless, not up front, not public sorts of things where we're preparing the way. Because without all of these various preparations, Jesus won't be able to do the things that need to be done. Because Jesus chooses to work through imperfect disciples like James and John and Peter and you and me. Jesus calls them and us to be about a host of seemingly ordinary things. But had they not done it, there'd have been no Palm Sunday. There'd have been no Hosanna. There'd been, there'd been no crowds welcoming Jesus as the arriving king. The details are important. Preparing the way 
is important. So that when the Lord chooses in the Lord's own time and own way to show up, the advance work has been done. And the preparations are ready. And we can receive Him properly. Jesus instructs them to get a young colt. What I think Palm Sunday is, especially in Mark's Gospel, is a lot of satire, some political street theater, because at maybe not the exact same time, but within a day or two, Pilate would have been marching in from the west. Jesus is coming to Jerusalem from the east. Remember the slide I showed you. Pilate would have been coming in the west, from the west. With all the pomp and circumstances of a Roman governor, with a legion of Roman soldiers backing him up, he would have been coming in wearing his armor and, and on a white charger, no doubt. And you've all seen victory parades, be it when the Eagles won the Super Bowl or the Astros won the the World Series or when the troops came home from Iraq or think back in your memory to the newsreels you've seen of of the Nazis marching down the Champs-Élysées in Paris, the Arc de Triomphe. And Jesus is parodying them. He's saying, you, you think that's what power and glory is about? <laughs> Let me show you what it's really about. It's, it's, a, it's a satire. And so Jesus comes in bobbing on the back of a young colt. As I picture it in my own mind's eye, his, his feet may not have reached, I mean, the, his feet may have been dragging in the ground in the dust. And all of his followers were shouting, Phrases from Psalm 118, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna. But Hosanna, save now is what the word means. But they also inserted another political slogan in the midst of the quotes from Psalm 18. Blessed is the son of David and his coming kingdom, the rightful heir to David's throne. I can see why if ever Jesus is going to say, shh, be quiet. Don't spread this around. There in Jerusalem at the time of Passover when Pilate was coming to town with all the reinforcements, that would have been the time to say, Shh, not so loud. This, this isn't going to go well when people hear it. But instead, this is the time when he, it's okay to proclaim Mark's messianic secret. That this is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the rightful Son of David. But the way Jesus has orchestrated, He's also clearly saying to all those folks who wanted the Rambo kind of Messiah who was going to kick out the Romans, my kingdom is not of this world. The way God exercises power is not the way you exercise power. And the contrast between Jesus' entry into Jerusalem and Pilate's entry into Jerusalem could not have escaped anybody. The Matthew and, and John, I believe, directly quote Zechariah, which was something that would have been in everybody's mind. All of these folks were good observant Jews who knew their scriptures. Mark doesn't directly quote, but 
it's kind of glaring obvious. The, the phrase from Zechariah, Rejoice greatly, O daughter Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter Jerusalem. Lo, your king comes to you. Triumphant and victorious is he. Humble and riding on a donkey. On a colt. The foal of a donkey. That much gets quoted directly at Palm Sunday and, and Matthew and I believe John. They don't go on to give you the next verse, which I think is the most important. This is not a proof text to say, see, Jesus, Jesus is not saying, see, I'm the fulfillment of what Zechariah was promising. I am here. And you know this as soon as you go on to the very next verse that too often gets jumped over or left out. He, the coming Messiah, will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall command peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. Zechariah is prophesying the kind of Messiah who's not going to exercise the kind of power that the kings of this world are so fond of. He will cut off, he will banish the war horse and the battle bow. And he shall command peace, not just to Israel, to Judah, but to the nations. In the Greek, it's to the, the ethnoi, to the Gentiles. This is what the Messiah was going to be about. And the, you know, how often do we conveniently leave out the parts of Scripture that we don't like? And proof texts and point to the ones that seem to prove what we already had decided in our own hearts and minds was what's really important. Jesus in riding into Jerusalem on the back of a young colt is saying, yes, I am the anointed one, the Messiah. But I'm not the kind of Messiah you were looking for. Not the kind of Messiah you were expecting. And that, I think, is part of the reason why the fickle crowd so quickly turns on Jesus. Why I suspect that many of the people who on Sunday are shouting Hosanna, by Thursday evening and Friday will be shouting, We have no king but Caesar crucified. Because he didn't fulfill their expectations and give them what they wanted. I think whatever else we take from Palm Sunday, I think we need to, to take from it the knowledge that being the people of God is not about us getting what we want. It's about us, by the grace of God, being able to see something of what God is about and what God wants for us and for the world. And to make ourselves available to Jesus saying, here I am reporting for duty. I'm not quite sure where this is all going, but what do you need me to do today? Go fetch a donkey? Donkey detail? Yes, Lord. I don't understand it, but I'll do it. May we all be preparers of the way so that we can receive 
the great good news of what God in Christ is doing for us in a new and a different way that the world can't give and the world can't take away. Thanks be to God.